special Memorial Day episode of the Peter Schiff Show podcast is sponsored by Bambi. HR manager salaries average $70,000 a year, but only Bambi gives you a dedicated HR manager for just $99 a month. Get your free HR compliance audit at Bambi.com slash gold, spelled Bambi, B-A-M-B-E-E dot com slash gold. Anyway, before I get into discussing Memorial Day, its origins, and really commenting on what Americans need to be mourning other than those who have fallen during American wars, I want to bring everybody up to speed on what's happened a little bit in the markets overnight and this morning because we do have a holiday here in the United States, but the rest of the world, it's business as usual. And right now, they're back to the business of selling U.S. dollars. Dollar is broadly weaker today against the euro. The dollar's lost about a third of a percent, similar percent decline against the Japanese yen and the Australian dollar. Dollar not quite as weak against the pound or the Canadian dollar, but it is still lower. In fact, the dollar index is back below the 90 handle, 89 83 is the last I am looking at. And the dollar is not just losing ground against other fiat currencies. It's also losing some more ground against real money, both gold and silver up today. Gold up almost another four bucks. It's trading around 1907 per ounce. Silver up 11 cents. So now back above a 28 handle at 28 05. You know, I think the most significant news in the foreign currency world has to do with actions taken overnight by the Chinese to try to slow down the rise in the yuan. I've been talking about the increase uh, in that currency, the loss of value for the dollar. And today the yuan is about flat, maybe slightly lower, down about three tenths of one percent. But if it wasn't for this move by the Chinese authorities, it's certainly possible that the dollar would be lower. The fact that all it could muster is unchanged, despite the government coming in trying to prop it up, really shows you how weak the U.S. dollar is relative to the Chinese yuan. What China decided to do to limit the weakness in the dollar is for the first time in 15 years, so this is significant, China decided to increase the reserve requirements on foreign currency deposits. So that wouldn't just apply to the dollar, it would apply to other foreign currency deposits, but clearly most of the foreign currency deposits in China are in U.S. dollars. And so now when Chinese banks take U.S. dollar deposits, they can't make as many loans. They have to hold more dollars than they had been holding. And so the idea here is that this is going to increase dollar demand in China because the banks are now going to have to buy more dollars or hold on to more dollars, so not sell as many dollars. But I don't think this move is going to provide any significant support to the dollar. The question is, is this an indication that the bank is going to do more 
to try to slow down the dollar's decline, which I think would be a mistake. I think the monetary authorities should let the market function and let the dollar fall. The dollar is going to be falling against a lot of currencies, not just the yuan. But one way that this might backfire if the goal of the policy is to strengthen the dollar is if Chinese banks, which now have to hold more dollars in reserve and so they can't loan out as many, maybe they will also reduce the interest that they pay their depositors on their U.S. dollars because obviously they can't make as much money loaning out those dollars. And if they do that, then that will simply widen the disparity between what you can earn on your RMB deposits or yuan deposits versus what you can earn on your dollar deposits. And that may cause more people in China to decide that they'd rather bank their yuan than dollars. And so what they end up doing is selling their dollars so that they can convert their deposits to yuan and earn more interest. Now, this is going to happen anyway as the dollar really starts to fall and the people in China start to perceive the risk of holding dollars and they would prefer the safety of owning local currency. So that is going to happen anyway, but this might accelerate the trend by widening the differential between the rates. So this could backfire, but then the Chinese may come up with some other plan. But as I said, this is wrongheaded. The Chinese should not be trying to do this. It benefits America. It doesn't benefit China. But also, you know, there's been a lot of people who have pointed to the Chinese currency peg. And they said, if it wasn't for this peg, it's the Chinese yuan that would fall. That somehow by pegging the currency to the dollar, they are having an artificially strong currency. And but for that peg, the yuan would crash. Clearly, when the central bank is intervening to support the dollar, that's not true. It's the dollar that's going to crash if China pulls the peg, not the yuan. And in fact, the main reason that the FX reserves are so large in China is because that's how many dollars they've had to buy to prevent the dollar from falling and to artificially suppress their own currency. But I think China has seen or read the writing on the wall and they understand it and they are reversing their policy, especially if you look at what they also announced overnight with respect to their now two-child policy. China famously had this one-child policy all the way up until 2015. And what that policy was, was that families, couples, could only have one kid. That was it. China was trying to limit the population, and so they limited couples to the number of kids they can have, and it was only one. Of course, that was a wrong-headed policy, but one of the other unintended consequences of that one-child policy was a shortage of girls. And this maybe wasn't that important when the girls were being born, but it was important when they were women of marrying age and you had a lot of Chinese boys who grew up into men and there weren't any women for them to marry. And the reason there became a shortage was because families, particularly those living on a farm, they valued boys more than girls because boys could help out on the farm. They could get more work out of a boy 
than they could out of a girl. And so if they can only have one baby, well, they wanted that baby to be a boy, which of course meant that there were a lot of abortions or even babies were, were killed after they were born. And the parents found out that it was a girl. But a lot of times it was just sex selection. You could tell obviously the sex of an unborn child and you can abort the girls until you get boys. Well, that changed in 2015, in part because of this shortage of women. You know, women were coming in from other countries to kind of fill the gap so that there would be enough women for all the, all the men. But in 2015, they increased it to two kids. Well, yesterday or last night, they increased it to three. So now Chinese families can have three kids, which means if you already have two, well, now you've got a green light to have a third. But what this is going to do, obviously, as the Chinese are having more and more babies, well, the demand for consumer goods in China is going to go up because these babies have to be fed. They have to be clothed. Uh, there's a lot of things that these babies are going to need. And of course, they're going to need even more and more stuff as they grow into adults. And so I think that domestic purchasing power is becoming far more important than exports to the United States. And so trying to artificially suppress the purchasing power of their own currency is no longer a primary concern. They're going to have a lot more people uh, to feed and to take care of. And so they want more purchasing power. They want to try to see the cost of raw materials and all the things that people are going to need. They want to see these things come down. And they're going to be more concerned about satisfying the demands of their own population, which is now going to really start to grow, as opposed to satisfying the demands of the American population, which is now in a lot of trouble because we're going to be fending more and more for ourselves. And we do not have the capabilities of doing that because over the years, we've grown dependent on countries like China. And so our economy has disintegrated. Our industrial capacity no longer exists. We have seen the economy transform into a service sector economy uh, where consumers borrow money to buy stuff they didn't buy. But all this is dependent on the reserve status of the dollar and our ability to import the stuff that we didn't make and borrow the money that we didn't save. Also, I want to talk a little bit about Bitcoin because on my last podcast that I did on Saturday, I thought that there was a probability that we may get a crash in Bitcoin due to the lighter trading of the holiday weekend and that I have noticed a lot of big drops in Bitcoin happen over the weekend when there is less trading and I thought there might be even less trading on a holiday weekend in the U.S. than on a typical weekend but we haven't seen that yet. I mean as I am recording this podcast Bitcoin is back above 36,000. In fact, it's closer to 37,000. We got above 37,000 maybe about an hour ago before I started recording this podcast here on Monday afternoon. The lowest I saw us get over the weekend was just above 34,000. So there was a lot of pressure on Bitcoin on Saturday and Sunday, but not able to break it down below the lows of the previous week. But that doesn't mean Bitcoin is out of the woods here because A, we haven't seen a significant rally either. I mean, we haven't seen a crash, but we haven't even been able to come up you know, to 40,000. Uh, so to me, the market still looks very weak. And of course, we still have the rest of today. That's not a holiday 
throughout the rest of the world, but we still have today for the market to break down and it very well may do that. But it's possible that the crash is going to be delayed uh, by a few days, but the technicals still look very, very bad. You know, one thing I wanted to point out is one of the facts that a lot of people in the Bitcoin community seem to have jumped all over over the weekend is blowing out of proportion a comment made by Ray Dalio. And Ray Dalio is the manager of the world's largest hedge fund. He's also my neighbor uh, for my summer home here in in Connecticut. He's not too far from me, though I don't really know him personally. uh, But I may try to uh, go out of my way to have a meeting with him. I think it it would be a very interesting conversation that the two of us may have. So I may try to make that happen if he wants to meet with me. But one of the things that Dalio said that the Bitcoin community is really making a big deal out of is the fact that Ray Dalio said that he would rather own Bitcoin than bonds. And when he's talking about bonds, he's really talking about U.S. Treasury bonds. And so he's saying he'd rather own Bitcoin than bonds. And everybody is like, oh, this is fantastic. Dalio thinks Bitcoin is better than bonds. And so he'd he'd rather own bonds. Well, what everybody is overlooking is the fact that Ray Dalio has no interest in bonds. He doesn't want to buy bonds. So the fact that he would rather have Bitcoin over something else that he doesn't want to have really doesn't mean anything. I mean, it's not really an endorsement of Bitcoin so much as a condemnation of bonds because Ray Dalio is one of the guys that says cash is trash. Well, what is Bitcoin? Bitcoin is a promise to deliver that trash in the future. So if you think cash is trash, well, then you really think future delivery of trash is even worse right? Because why would you want to get your trash in the future after it's depreciated in value? It's going to smell a lot worse if you got to wait five or 10 years uh, to get it, right? So the fact that Ray Dalio knows that there's a lot of inflation, he wants to get out of U.S. dollars. He thinks U.S. dollars are trash. And so he thinks bonds by extension are even a worse smelling form of trash. Well, he clearly has no interest in bonds. So the fact that he prefers Bitcoin is something he absolutely has no intention of buying means nothing, right? It's not like Ray Dalio said, I'd rather have Bitcoin than gold. He didn't say that and he would never say that because that's not true. He didn't say I'd rather own Bitcoin than silver. He didn't say I'd rather own Bitcoin than real estate or I'd rather own Bitcoin than common stocks or I'd rather own Bitcoin than commodities or he didn't even say I'd rather own Bitcoin than the Swiss franc or some other foreign currency because I don't think he'd rather own Bitcoin over any of those alternative assets. The only reason he'd own Bitcoin is if it was a choice between U.S. Treasuries and Bitcoin and then Bitcoin wins the ugly contest by being less ugly than Treasuries. That's it. You know. Now, yes, Ray Dalio did mention that he owned some Bitcoin, but what does that mean? The guy's a billionaire. How much Bitcoin does he own? I mean, maybe he bought a Bitcoin just for laughs, just, you know, the way he might, you know, go to a casino and and gamble or, you know, whatever he would do for fun. Maybe he bought a Bitcoin. I don't know. But I mean, what did he pay? Maybe he paid $40,000, $50,000 for Bitcoin. What's that? When you're a multi-billionaire, that's throwaway money. I seriously doubt that Ray Dalio allocated any kind of meaningful percentage, even 1%. 
even one tenth of one percent to Bitcoin. So the fact that he may have bought a little bit of it just to play around with it means nothing. But of course, everybody in the Bitcoin community wants to hype this thing up and talk about uh, how Ray Dalio now likes Bitcoin better than bonds, and therefore it's as good as bonds or better than bonds. And this is not an endorsement of Bitcoin. Look, I can come out and say, hey, I'd rather have Bitcoin than get cancer, right? If those are my choices, buy some Bitcoin or you're going to get cancer. Well, hell, I guess I'm going to buy Bitcoin. So does that mean I'm endorsing Bitcoin because I'd rather have Bitcoin than get cancer? No. I mean, you know, if it's a choice between two things that I don't like, then I'm going to choose the one that is less objectionable. Now, according to Ray Dalio, I guess Bitcoin is less objectionable to bonds because he probably has no money in bonds. So even if he has one Satoshi, well, then he's got more in Bitcoin than he has in bonds. Now, I have no money in Bitcoin. I have no intention of putting any money in Bitcoin. I also have no money in U.S. bonds. Now, I do have some money in foreign bonds. Not a lot as a percentage of my overall portfolio, but I do keep some cash in uh, foreign currency denominated bonds. But the vast majority of my international investments are in equities that pay dividends. And the dividends that I'm getting on my equities are much higher than the yields I'm getting on my bonds. And I also think that those stocks are going to appreciate. Well, then why do I have any money in foreign bonds? Well, just in case we get an unexpected big drop in foreign stocks, well, I can use those foreign bonds to increase my already high allocation to foreign stocks. And of course, let's say I have an emergency need for cash. I really don't keep many dollars at all. So to the extent that an emergency comes up and I need cash, I'd rather be able to pull that cash from foreign bonds than from foreign stocks. Because what if I need cash when stocks are tanking? I don't really want to sell the stocks. My bonds aren't going to tank very much because my maturities are all very, very short. So my only exposure there is the FX. And I think that there's very little chance that we're going to have a huge rally in the dollar. And even if it is, it's not going to be that substantial compared to the big drop that I could have in the short run on foreign stocks. So I always want to keep some reserve money, but I don't want it in U.S. dollars. Now, I don't want it in Bitcoin either, uh, so I have it in, in foreign bonds. Now, again, I also have that same perspective for my gold and silver, although I would sell my foreign currencies, my foreign bonds to meet an emergency expense before I would dip in to my gold and silver. That's kind of a, a last resort. And I'm sure Dalio, if I had a private conversation with him, would pretty much express the same sentiment. Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner, too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. When you're running a business, the HR issues can kill you. You get wrongful termination lawsuits, minimum wage requirements, anti-discrimination lawsuits, all sorts of labor regulations. And HR manager salaries ain't cheap. They average $70,000 a year. 
That's where Bambi comes in, spelled B-A-M-B-E-E. Bambi was created specifically for small business owners like you and me. Now you can get a dedicated HR manager that will craft HR policy and maintain your compliance, all for just $99 a month. And with Bambi, you can change HR from your biggest liability to one of your biggest strengths. Your dedicated HR manager is available by phone, email, or real-time chat They'll discuss anything from onboarding to terminations. They'll customize your policies to fit your business, and they'll help you manage your employees on a day-to-day basis, all for just 99 bucks a month. And it's month-to-month. There's no hidden fees, and you can cancel anytime. You didn't start your business because you wanted to spend time on HR compliance. Let Bambi help. Get your free HR audit today. Go to Bambi.com slash gold right now to schedule your free HR audit. That's Bambi.com slash gold, spelled B-A-M to the B-E-E dot com slash gold. Anyway, I want to uh, move forward now and talk a little bit about Memorial Day. And a lot of people probably don't even understand the holiday or where it came from. But to me, the most significant aspect of Memorial Day is not just the fact that we're going to honor our fallen soldiers who have given their lives in battle for the United States. But in addition to just mourning the people who lost their lives, I also think we need to mourn the fact that all Americans, including the ones that survived the wars, but the children of the people who died to the extent that they had children before they died, everybody lost freedom and liberty, that even though we fought to preserve the liberties upon which this country was founded, during every single war we fought, the U.S. government took advantage of the hysteria and the patriotism surrounding the war to minimize or diminish some of our freedoms and our liberties, generally through higher taxes that were never reduced once the wars were over. And so my father used to say that America lost every war that it fought because we always finished the war with less freedom than when we started the war. So in that respect, our enemies won because as a result of the war, Americans emerged less free. Even though we conquered our enemies, we didn't conquer ourselves. And we ended up suffering real diminishments in our individual liberties as a result of the wartime powers that were usurped by the government and never surrenders. And it really goes all the way back to the Civil War. And by the way, that is where the Memorial Day holiday actually has its origins. In fact, before Memorial Day was called Memorial Day, it was called Decoration Day. And it became a holiday in 1868, right? The Civil War ended in 1865, And so we began to celebrate Decoration Day. And what that meant is we decorated the graves of the soldiers who had perished during the Civil War on both sides, right? These are Confederate soldiers' graves that were decorated, not just Union soldiers. So that's when the holiday started. And we continued to honor war dead on Decoration Day from the Civil War until the end of the First World War. And then after the First World War was over and we had a lot more Americans who had died, we decided to honor not just those who died during the Civil War, but to honor 
all Americans who died in any wars, right, which would include uh, the First World War that had just come to an end. And so we continue to honor our fallen soldiers on Decoration Day all the way until 1950 when they actually changed the name of the holiday to Memorial Day. And of course, by then we had a lot more fallen to uh, remember and to mourn because we had just ended the Second World War five years earlier. So 1950, Decoration Day becomes Memorial Day, but it was not until 1971 that it became a federal holiday and they set it as the last Monday of May so everybody can get a three-day weekend. So that's when people started getting this paid federal holiday. Now, before 1971, I think it was a holiday on local levels. I'm not sure you know, which states honored it or which towns or cities, but there were people that did have the day off uh, for uh, Decoration Day and then for Memorial Day. But then it became a national federal holiday and everybody had the day off in 1971. But What's more important than the history of Memorial Day is I want to go over all of the freedoms and liberties that we need to mourn because we lost all those freedoms and liberties as a result of wartime. And I don't want to diminish the personal sacrifices of all Americans who perished in these wars. But the problem is their sacrifice would have been better had we not also sacrificed our liberties. I mean, to me, a lot of Americans, if they actually knew what happened, they gave their lives for a cause they believed in, you know, the U.S. Constitution, individual liberty. But as a result of the war that they sacrificed their lives, liberties were lost anyway because of the extra power that the government usurped using the environment of a war to get the public to surrender freedoms and liberties that during peacetime they would never have surrendered. So let's start with the Civil War. The Civil War marked the very first time in American history that the U.S. government issued paper money. Greenbacks were issued during the Civil War. So prior to that, we didn't have paper money, but then the U.S. government started issuing it during the war as a wartime emergency. Now, when the war was over, they stopped doing it. And in fact, if you go and look at the legal tender cases, because the minute the government did this, it was challenged as being constitutional. And when the Supreme Court upheld the constitutionality of the Greenback, when the government argued for their constitutional authority, they didn't look to the monetary provisions. Article 1, Section 8, where it says, Congress shall have the power to coin money, regulate the value thereof. It was obvious that coin money didn't mean print money. The U.S. government argued that it was a wartime power, that we were at war and it was necessary to issue paper money to save the union. And so it was on that basis that the paper money was declared constitutional because it was a wartime emergency that was required to save the union. But what's interesting, if anyone tries to question the constitutionality of U.S. currency today, they cite the same Supreme Court decision that basically only declared it constitutional when it was a wartime emergency. And in fact, when the war was over, the government didn't immediately redeem the notes. They kept circulating for a while. And the court ruled in a later case that 
They didn't have to redeem them. They couldn't issue any new ones now that the war was over, but the ones that were already out could stay in circulation. And so they stayed in circulation for a while until they eventually disappeared from circulation. And then we didn't have any paper money at all until the Federal Reserve came around in 1913. But it started with the Civil War. And actually, the greenbacks that were issued by the U.S. government during the Civil War were backed by and ultimately redeemable in gold and silver. So it wasn't like they just printed money with nothing behind it. There was still gold and silver backing it up. So when they point to the Supreme Court decisions that validated the constitutionality of paper money, the paper money that's being issued today has nothing in common with the greenbacks that were issued during the Civil War. A, it's peacetime, it's not wartime. So emergency wartime powers have nothing to do with it. And B, the notes issued back then were backed by a redeemable of gold and silver, whereas the notes that were issued now are backed by nothing. So what do irredeemable notes issued by a private banking syndicate, aka the Federal Reserve, what do they have to do with notes issued by the U.S. government during wartime that were backed by gold and silver? Absolutely nothing, yet it's those cases that the government relies on today to show that what we're doing now is constitutional, even though what's happening today has absolutely nothing to do with what was happening during the Civil War. The same thing with the income tax. The very first federal income tax in America was not the one that was declared unconstitutional by the Pollock decision, which is what paved the way for the Supreme Court to amend the Constitution, but the first income tax happened during the Civil War. And when the war was over, the income tax ended. And again, it didn't come back again for quite some time. But the origins were in the Civil War. And I think had we never had a Civil War income tax, it never might have reared its ugly head in the future. And in fact, a lot of people don't know why the United States is so unique in the world. There's like one other country that does this, and I forget the name of it because it's an insignificant country as far as its size is concerned. Uh, But most countries, to the extent that they have an income tax, and most of them do, unfortunately, but they only tax the income that you earn living in the country. So if you leave the country uh, and you earn income, well, they don't tax you. So if you're a Canadian, for example, and you move to another country and you don't come back to Canada, you live in another country and you earn money living in the other country, Canada doesn't tax you. The other country that you live in may tax you and they will tax you if they have an income tax, but Canada doesn't tax you. America, on the other hand, we tax all American citizens no matter where they live. Now, if you move to Canada or you know some other country and you pay a local income tax, the U.S., if there's a tax treaty, they'll let you take a deduction or a credit for the taxes you pay internationally. But if the taxes of the country that you move to are lower than the taxes in America, well, you're going to pay the difference. And of course, you're still filing these tax returns no matter where you live. People don't know why that is. Well, it all started during the Civil War. And here's how it happened. So what are the other bad things that happened as a result of the Civil War was it was the first time the U.S. government instituted the draft. Now, it wasn't the last time because we've had plenty of drafts since, but it was the first time. And apart from a lot of riots, the most brutal ones being in New York City, but a lot of Americans didn't want to fight. And so they dodged the draft by moving to other countries, right? Draft dodging didn't just start in Vietnam, right? There are a lot of people that didn't want to fight in the Civil War, particularly a lot of people in the North. You had a lot more people in the South 
who really wanted to fight because as far as they were concerned, uh, they were fighting for their own sovereignty. The North was the aggressor and they wanted to preserve uh, their way of life. And so people in the South were more willing to just sign up and fight for the South than a lot of people in the North who were like, hey, if the South wants to leave, let them leave. I mean, why are we fighting this war? I mean, let them secede. We don't care, right? And remember, it wasn't about slavery. Lincoln didn't make the war about slavery until 1863. So really, it was just a war to suppress secession. And so a lot of people up North, what, what do they care? If South wants to go, let them go, right? And so they, they needed a draft. So a lot of people who didn't want to fight were leaving the country. And so when the income tax was enacted, what the government wanted to do is even though people were avoiding military service by leaving the country, they didn't want those people to also avoid having to pay the cost of the war. So what they did is they said, okay, we're going to tax Americans no matter where they live. So if you're an American and you went up to Canada because you don't want to fight in the war, okay, you're not fighting the war, but you're an American citizen, you're still paying this income tax because you still have to help participate in funding the war because your country is at war and we don't care where in the world you live, you're an American, you are going to contribute to the war effort if you're not going to do it physically, you know, with your body, you're going to do it financially uh, with your money. And so that was the reason that the income tax applied worldwide, no matter where you live. Now, when they eventually brought the income tax back, right after we got the 16th Amendment, we got a new income tax, we incorporated that language from the Civil War, right? Even though we were no longer in a Civil War, we no longer had all these draft dodgers that we were trying to tax, but they kept that aspect of the tax. So again, without the Civil War, we never would have had that bad precedent that was then continued. And in fact, without the Civil War, we never would have had the first income tax, so it never may have reared its ugly head again. But once we had the precedent for doing it, well, we did it again. Same thing with paper money. Maybe if we didn't have the Civil War, we never would have had the greenback. And if we had never had the greenback, maybe we never would have had the Federal Reserve note. Who knows? But anyway, but that's the Civil War. Let's go to World War I. I think one of the big taxes we got from World War I was the inheritance tax. Now, technically, the inheritance tax came in in 1916, and America didn't enter the First World War until 1917, but the war was raging uh, during the year that the inheritance tax was passed, and I think that it probably played a role in that tax. But again, it was also part of the income tax, and so I think had we never passed an income tax, we never would have had an inheritance tax, but I think the inheritance tax also was to get some extra money for the First World War, which we entered the following year. Now, the gift tax didn't come in until after the First World War ended. I think it was 1924. But the only reason we have a gift tax was because we had an inheritance tax. Because in order to avoid the inheritance tax, well, people started giving their money away. So now once we had an inheritance tax, we needed a gift tax. Well, we never would have had a gift tax if we didn't have an inheritance tax, and we never would have had an inheritance tax if we didn't have an income tax, and we only have the income tax because of the Civil War, and so that's it. So all of this is the result of wartime powers, because, right, wars cost money, and so now the government has to raise taxes. And during these earlier years, a lot of these taxes went away that they would introduce. Like, look at the uh, telephone excise tax. Right, we pay an, a telephone excise tax. 
Well, the very first telephone excise tax, and we still pay it now. You look at your cell phone bill, you'll see the tax. The first time we actually had that tax was during the Spanish-American War, right? And they enacted the tax in 1898 to help pay for the war. And then in 1902, the war was over, they repealed the tax, right? So at least they had the decency to repeal a wartime tax. Then during the First World War, they instituted again. In 1917, they put the telephone excise tax back on. And then in 1924, when the war was over, they took it away. And we didn't get the excise tax, the telephone excise tax again until 1941, right? That was the beginning of the Second World War. The problem is after the Second World War ended, they never repealed it. We have been paying the 1941 tax to fund the Second World War all the way up now it's 2021. So 80 years later, we're still paying a tax that was enacted to fund a war that ended in 1945. But of course, the telephone excise tax wasn't the worst tax to come out of the Second World War. No, 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 no. That was the withholding tax. And that came in as part of the 1942 Revenue Tax Act that was also known as the Victory Tax. And of course, one of the reasons that they wanted to call it the Victory Tax is because who is going to be opposed to the victory tax, right? I mean, how are you going to be in opposition to a victory tax? I mean, don't you want to win the war? How can you be against victory, right? So you got to be for this victory tax. And of course, nobody would have been against taxes who was at home and wasn't fighting in the war themselves because, I mean, that's ridiculous. You got Americans overseas giving their lives for the country, fighting this huge war effort, and you're not even going to pay the taxes uh, to help out. I mean, so who could oppose paying for a tax when you weren't even fighting in the war, when other people were doing uh, the fighting for you. So there was no opposition to these taxes. No one cared about the unconstitutional nature of these taxes. But if you look at what happened with the income tax and the introduction of the withholding tax, because up until 1942, nobody in America had taxes taken out of their pay. To the extent that you owed an income tax, you didn't pay it until the following year. So let's say in 1942, 40, if the year ends in December, and then you look back on the year and you see, oh, how much money did I earn? What are my deductions? What do I owe in taxes? You just wrote a check and it was due, whatever, April 15th of 1941. That's when you wrote a check for uh, your obligation from 1940. So the government had to wait until April of the following year to actually get the tax revenue. There was no withholding taxes. There were also no estimated taxes. In fact, estimated taxes came much later. The only thing that started in 1942 was wage withholding, where your income tax was taken right out of your pay and sent directly to the government. And the reason was, well, the government couldn't wait a year for the money because it needed it because we were fighting the war right now. And also, I think the government was afraid that since now we were going to tax your average wage earner, that they may not have the money at the end of the year to pay the tax. They may have spent it. They may not have saved it. So it was better to take the tax money right out of your paycheck to make sure the government got it. But if you look at the number or percentage, rather, of Americans who paid the income tax before the Second World War, in 1940, fewer than 7% of Americans paid the income tax. By 1944, 64% of Americans were now paying the income tax and having it directly taken out of their pay. 
Now, when the war ended, they didn't stop. The taxes continued. The withholding tax continued. So what we are paying today, the fact that the U.S. government is taking money out of Americans' paychecks, the only reason this happened is because of the Second World War, right? If we never had a Second World War, then we never would have had a withholding tax. And Americans wouldn't be paying income taxes to the extent that they pay them now. So from that perspective, we lost the Second World War because we won the war, but we got stuck with the income tax. That is a huge loss. I mean, look at how much money now Americans are paying in these payroll taxes, how much money is taken from your paycheck every single year. So yes, we may have defeated the Nazis, but at what price? The price was the income tax that we're still paying today through the withholding tax. And before I move forward, though, to the Korean War, I also want to mention what other thing that we got from the First World War that wasn't actually a tax, but actually paved the way for the inflation tax. And that was allowing the Federal Reserve to buy and hold U.S. Treasuries. Because the original Federal Reserve Act that passed in 1913 did not give the Federal Reserve the authority to hold any U.S. government debt. Now, why didn't they want the Federal Reserve to hold U.S. government debt? Well, because they didn't want the U.S. government to be able to use the Federal Reserve in the precise manner that it's using them now. I mean, nobody wanted a central bank to monetize debt. And so had the Federal Reserve Act in its original form authorized the Federal Reserve to own any U.S. treasuries, they wouldn't have passed it. Congress never would have passed the Federal Reserve Act. So they got the camel's nose under the tent with the stipulation that, yes, we're going to have a Federal Reserve, but yes, it's independent, and we're not even going to let it buy or hold any U.S. government debt, even if it wants to. So there's no way the U.S. government is going to be able to work with the Federal Reserve. Well, what happened when the First World War started and the government needed to raise money, it needed to raise it quickly, and it wanted to borrow money too, because governments would always borrow money. They didn't just raise taxes during the war. They borrowed money. But of course, in order to borrow money, you have to find a lender. And they didn't want to have to find a lender. They wanted to borrow from the Federal Reserve, but that was illegal. So they changed the Federal Reserve Act during the First World War to allow the Federal Reserve to buy and hold U.S. Treasuries, not directly from the U.S. Treasury, but in the market. And so that created more demand for U.S. Treasuries, which made it easier for the U.S. government to borrow money to finance the First World War. Now, we never should have got involved in the First World War anyway. The whole thing was a loss. We never should have fought it. We should have minded our business and stayed out of that war. But yes, we won the war, but we now gave the Federal Reserve all of this power to monetize U.S. government debt. And that's the reason that they now have almost an $8 trillion balance sheet. And one of the main reasons the U.S. government was able to get so big and so expensive is because of this change in the Federal Reserve Act that never would have happened without the U.S. government being involved in World War I. And also, it's interesting. A lot of people know about the debt ceiling, which is about to get completely abolished. In fact, it's been suspended, right? We don't even raise the ceiling anymore. We just suspend it. And I think the suspension is going to come up in a few months, and they're going to have to figure out what they're going to do with it. But if you want to know why we even have a debt ceiling, again, it goes back to the First World War. So when Congress gave the Federal Reserve the ability to own U.S. Treasuries, it dawned on a number of congressmen at the time 
that this could be abused by the U.S. government, that the government might start taking on a lot more debt if the Federal Reserve was allowed to loan them money. And so that's where the idea of a debt ceiling came in. These geniuses says, okay, we're going to have a ceiling. So we won't have to worry about the government borrowing too much money because we now empowered the Fed to buy treasuries. We are going to put a debt ceiling in place to limit the amount of debt. So, you know, it was a great idea, I guess, but I guess Congress forgot that whatever they do in one Congress, it doesn't necessarily bind a future Congress. Just because you have a ceiling doesn't mean that a future Congress can't vote to raise the ceiling, which is exactly what's happened. I don't know how many times it's been raised, 50, 60, 70, whatever it is, but every time we've gone near the ceiling, the ceiling goes up and up and up and up. And so it's not a ceiling at all. And so even though they tried to limit the damage that they were doing, there was no limit at all because they didn't limit Congress's ability to raise that ceiling, which is why they never should have amended the Federal Reserve Act in the first place. But once they did, then the ceiling was meaningless and we're now living with the consequences. But again, all of this has its origin in a war. And because there was a war, the public lets the government get away with a lot of stuff that they can never get away with in peacetime because you want to be patriotic. You want to do your part to support a war effort. You may not be fighting, but you're going to be helping to pay the cost. And the Supreme Court looks the other way because, you know, this is important. We got to win this war. So we have to preserve the Constitution. Maybe we have to break it, violate it in order to preserve it. But then once the war is over, none of this stuff is rolled back. Korean War, I don't know about any... New taxes, they did raise taxes a couple of times during the Korean War, corporate taxes, excess profit taxes. I think there were a number of increases uh, for taxes. But the Korean War was really the last war that the government felt the need to finance with taxation. I mean, they always financed it with a combination of taxation and debt. But it was really the beginning of the Vietnam War where the government discovered the printing press. And they were like, hey, why should we tax the voters? That's not going to be very popular at the polls. Why don't we just utilize the Fed? Why don't we just print a bunch of money and we're going to pay for the war by printing money? And that's really how we financed the Vietnam War. There were no real new taxes to pay for the Vietnam War. Uh, we just printed a lot of new money to pay for that war. That's why we had the big inflation of the 1970s was because we printed all this money in the 1960s and into the 1970s to pay for that war. So again, that doesn't mean the American public wasn't taxed to fund the war. They were just taxed in a different way. Instead of paying some type of victory tax, which meant sending more money to the government, they just allowed the government to print money, driving up prices. And so they sent their purchasing power to the government instead of their money. And that is exactly what we're doing now. I mean, we're fighting this war on COVID-19 by printing money. But we fought all the wars since the Vietnam War, the war on terror, Desert Storm, all of those wars were paid for by the printing press. And the reason we haven't seen this runaway inflation as a consequence is because despite the fact that we were printing all this money, the dollar continued to function as the world's reserve currency. And so we were able to continue to import more and more products with the money that we printed and our trading partners were willing to recycle their export earnings into our financial markets. And so we were able to go deeper and deeper into debt and postpone the day of reckoning. 
But as I've been saying on this podcast, our ability to kick the can down the road is soon going to come to an end. And we are going to be paying the piper for all of these wars that we financed through inflation. And of course, even though we didn't get new taxes in some of these newer wars, like the war on terror, we got new laws. The worst one being the Patriot Act that was passed under George Bush. And again, this was after 9-11. We've got the Patriot Act. And this destroyed what was left of privacy in America between the anti-money laundering laws that were passed as part of and subsequent to the Patriot Act. Americans no longer have any privacy whatsoever. The government knows everything about you. This was probably one of the most unpatriotic pieces of legislation passed in American history, which is why it was called the Patriot Act, because after all, how can you be against the Patriot Act? Aren't you a patriot? Despite the fact that the law itself was extremely unpatriotic. I mean, I've, I've talked about this on the podcast before. The government has laws, truth and advertising. Well, those laws should apply to legislating. You should have to be honest with the name of your legislation because what government does is they name a bill the opposite of what it's going to do, right? So if they want to complicate taxes, they're going to pass a new bill and they're going to call it the Tax Simplification Act. And that means they're making taxes a lot more complicated. So if they want to pass an extremely unpatriotic law that destroys your constitutional rights, your rights to privacy, they call it the Patriot Act. So even if we didn't get new taxes, we surrendered a lot of our constitutional rights. And it's not just those wars. Look at the war on drugs. Where do you think we got the forfeiture laws from? That was all a byproduct of the war on drugs. Well, these forfeiture laws meant we forfeit our constitutional rights to due process. The government could just seize your property. There is no hearing. There is no due process. You have to try to sue to get it back. But a lot of our core constitutional freedoms are cast aside because there's some wartime emergency, whether it's a real war or some manufactured war that the government wants to create, they create a war. And then in the environment of this war, now they're able to do a lot of things. They're getting able to get public support for stuff that they never could do in peacetime because the public lowers its guard and people are afraid to be against it. Believe me, very few people had the guts to vote against the Patriot Act. I mean, especially the images of the terrorists taking down the Twin Towers and the whole country had witnessed that, had experienced it. And now this is the legislation that supposedly is going to keep us safe. Very few people were willing to object to it. I objected to it. And I remember the warning of our founders, you do not want to sacrifice some of your liberties in exchange for some safety. And the irony of that is when you give up your liberties because you think it's going to make you safe, not only do you lose your liberties, but you become less safe. You, you lose both. You make a deal with the devil and you can't expect the devil to honor his deal. And that's exactly what we do with the government. Every time the government offers to keep us safe, if we'll only surrender some of our freedoms and some of our liberties, we lose freedoms and liberties, but then we end up being less safe in the process. 